It is so good to be with you all. It is so good to worship alongside you all. It is so good to be God's people together. Amen? I don't know about you, but church, being God's people and gathering together to worship is so vital for me in my week to sing what we just sang, to pray together, and to look into the life of Jesus orients my whole week. So it's so good to be with you. Glad you're here. Hey, would you turn to Matthew chapter 27? If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. It'll be on the screen. But if you want to follow along, you can grab that Bible in front of you or swipe if you got it on your phone. We're going to be there in just a moment. But just by way of reminder, as Pastor Kathy has so beautifully reminded us earlier, we're in the season of Lent. And I love the stories that she's been sharing because the only life we have to live is our everyday life. There is no spiritual life for this life. It's just a life. And finding God at work in our everyday is what this Christian journey is all about. And so in Lent, we especially are zeroing in and especially focusing in in our preparation for Easter. And the classic spiritual life disciplines are giving, praying, and fasting. And we're doing that together as a church. Each week during the season, we've been inviting you to give sacrificially and generously toward a new initiative called the Neighborhood Table. We are seeking to build relationships that we've already initiated with our neighbors through our clothes closet. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of families that we've met, that we've prayed with, that we've walked with little by little, not only in our clothes closet on our third Saturdays, but on Rockin' Summer, when we spend a whole week playing with and talking about Jesus to these young neighbors. We've given uniforms, hundreds of them. We've given coats, dozens of them. But there's this missing piece we feel called to actually now share a meal and share Jesus with them more and more. It's less like a soup kitchen and it's more like a family reunion, but it's going to take some resources. So we're trying to raise $5,000 because the Rock Community Center needs tables, whether we're doing a dinner church or not. They need chairs, whether we're doing a dinner church or not. And because what we do matters and how we do it matters, we want to buy platters and bowls to break bread and eat together with tablecloths and all the things you'd expect in a nice family gathering. So we're asking you to give. We're also asking you to pray. After our gathering this evening, we're going to have just a few of us, if you've got some time, we want to gather in the back and we want to pray intentionally and intercede for some needs in our community. So we're going to pray together. We've been doing that each Saturday in Lent. We've been also inviting you to fast, and Pastor Kathy's been highlighting some of those stories throughout our time together. It's a way of saying no to some little things so that we could say a better yes to God in this season. It's like an alarm clock that every time you reach for that chocolate or that fast food, you say, oh, Jesus, I need that, but I need you more, amen? And I know some of y'all are needing some McDonald's these days. Because some of y'all have given up eating out. So, take heart. we got a couple more weeks left. 
As we've been going through Lent, we've been doing a sermon series called Together We. We've been on a journey with Jesus toward the cross. We've been following his path, and we've been examining our own place in the story. And that puts us in Matthew 27 tonight, and these are the four questions we're looking at this evening. Where's Jesus in his story on his way to the cross? Where's our world in the story? What are the ways in which we betray, deny, mock, which is what we're looking at tonight? But then where are we in the story? I don't know about y'all, but sometimes it's easier for me to talk about them out there, but it's another thing to think about me right here. And then finally, we'll close this evening with where is our hope? Where do we see hope, even in those places and spaces in which Jesus is mocked and shamed and experiencing all of this torture and suffering? Where's the hope, even in this? And this evening... We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about Jesus' example that empowers us. Even when words from others hurt and sting, we have a way forward and there's still hope. So we're going to look at Jesus on his way to the cross, beginning in Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 to 31. Y'all with me? It's a short passage. Let me read it for us. The governor's soldiers took Jesus... In the praetorium, that's like the governor's palace and courtyard. And then they gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. That could be upwards of 600 dudes. They stripped him. Then they put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and they set it on his head. Then they put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. (laughs) And then they spit on him. And they took the staff and they struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. Man. What is the way forward, even when the whole world is mocking you and out to get you? Well, church, finish this phrase for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yes, you said that with a half groan because you've been hearing that since you were in second grade. But hopefully, by now, you realize that that is a load of you-know-what. Yes? It's totally bogus. Because you lovely people are sitting here before me with the keen awareness that words not only hurt, but words have a way of sticking to us and sticking around in our minds, in our hearts. Yes? So long after that broken nose and bruise and black eye is healed, you've still got a phrase or two or three rattling around in the back of your head, yeah? Man, what is it? And for some of us, that's the real egregious, knockdown, drag-out, finger-pointing, screaming, cursing, right-in-your-face kind of stuff, right? That stuff hurts, and it hurts hard. But even those little things, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. The side comments, the kinds of comments that if you talk to the person that said it, they would be like, oh, did I say that? And you want to be like, uh, yeah, 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 you did. 
Yeah, seven years ago, it was July 17th, I remember, you were wearing a blue shirt. I wanted to punch that shirt right off of you. I remember this little thing seven years ago. <laughs> it may have been July 17th or whatever I just said. It was this little comment. Most of y'all know I'm a musician. I sing. I used to play guitar. Before I was a preacher man, I was a worship leader, and I had just led worship in this gathering at this church. And this guy came up to me and goes, man, that was pretty good. It was pretty good. You, you got kind of like a lounge singer vibe. And I was like, yeah, but do I? What? And for like a whole week, I'm sitting there going, Amy, Amy do I sound like a lounge singer? Are you serious? Like, what? But li- listen to this. I mean, this little thing. And I'm, I kid you not, like every other time I'm singing, I'm like, is that loungy? Is that loungy sounding? Don't you ever tell me if it is or isn't, church. <laughs> These little things. Okay, another thing. How about the feedback sandwich? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You got some, some constructive things, which is code for negative things, but you got to sneak in a nice one, right? Okay, what if you got nine glowing, amazing, awesome things in your performance review, but you had one not-so-great one? Which is the one that you remember? Dude, what is this? What is it? Even the little things. We have to recognize the power of our words and the damage that they can cause emotionally and psychologically. Words can hurt, words can heal. And what's interesting about our text and our pause in the journey of Jesus tonight is that so often in this season we talk about the physical sufferings of Jesus, right? I mean, look at these banners we have up here. We've seen the passion of the Christ. We've seen them TV shows. We know that blood and guts and gore has this visceral reaction, so we usually tend to focus on the physical sufferings. What's interesting, if you read the Gospels, you hear and they crucified him. You read, and they flogged him. You read a handful of words that speak to the physical, but there are sentences and paragraphs of the ways in which Jesus not only suffered physically, but he suffered relationally, socially, when his own people and crowd turned their public opinion against him. He suffers psychologically, as we just read. He suffers relationally when his own inner circle abandons him. On his journey to the cross, he hurt and struggled in one day in all the myriad ways we as human beings suffer. It hit every note and checked every box of suffering. And the interesting thing is that Jesus didn't have to, but he willingly submitted to this in solidarity with humanity so that our God could say, I get it. I get it. I've been there. And it may not make it easier because you still feel it, but know that I'm still with you. And while it may not be easier, understand that you're not alone and I'm not done. In solidarity with humanity, Jesus rescues a suffering world through his suffering. That's what the cross is about. That's what I want us to see. So let's get back into our story. Where is Jesus in this story? You may recall that Jesus has been betrayed. And he suffered relationally 
because Judas, a trusted partner and companion, completely sold him out. Then we looked at how he was denied. Anybody been there from a best friend that when you needed this person most, when push comes to shove, you call, you text, you look around, and the dude has ghosted you? He was denied. And it wasn't just the one guy, Peter. You follow the story to the end. All of Jesus' inner circle, the disciples, bail and desert him. How many of you have been there? You may not have been headed to the cross, but what you've experienced in your own life feels like a kind of death and torture and suffering. Who is living that right now? Who is living in the relational pain of looking around and saying, I don't have anyone? And it may not be you sitting in this seat, but is your mind drifting and traveling to someone that you know? Could it be an invitation in this moment to recognize the pain that that person is experiencing and try to reach out? Even if they don't reach back, who's living in that? And if it's not you and it's not your friend, surely you've been there before. And here's why I think this is so important and why we're taking this journey with Jesus and exploring our own part in the story. Because you need to know this. Jesus knows what his people are going through. Jesus has felt the relational sting of people bailing on him when he needed them most. But it wasn't just his inner circle. It was his whole tribe. There was this social rejection Next week is Palm Sunday, and we try to unpack the disconnect in the gospel stories when everybody is super pumped that Jesus is coming into town. Woo, rock and roll. I heard about this guy. He's awesome. Yeah, Hosanna, save us. He rocks. And then a week later, uh, crucify this dude. What happens? It's amazing. The whole crowd turns on him. And all of a sudden, the words that he had said so openly that week from when he was welcomed like a king and then crucified like a criminal, all of those things that he said, they took and they threw back in his face, right? Jesus, you shouldn't have tweeted that. Ooh, Jesus, did y'all see that Facebook post? Yeah, he got fired now. Doesn't our world do this? <laughs> we jump and we condemn and there's no room for forgiveness or explanation, it's a mob mentality. So he's suffering socially because of all these accusations that are thrown back in his face. And then he has this midnight trial. You remember with the Jewish leaders, the people that he had seen, that knew his parents, that knew the town he was from. They had friends in common. And all of a sudden, they're rushing in the secret of night to get this thing done, to get this thing movement moving and rushing to judgment. None of y'all have ever been judged before, right? None of y'all have ever walked into a new office, a new space, a new school, a new church. Whoops, hopefully not this one. And people have already slotted you. Jesus experienced this to the nth degree. And after that makeshift trial, they punt him over to Pilate. And he tries to wash his hands, but really, if he was that innocent, why did he send him to get tortured, whipped, flogged within an inch of his life? 
And then that brings us to our point today. What's fascinating is Pilate, the same dude that washed his hands, was like, oh, he's an innocent man. All of a sudden, he kind of kicks him to his homeboys, the 600 or so, give or take, soldiers behind closed doors in the courtyard of the governor's palace. And that brings us to the next question and the next part of our story. Where's our world? We love to jump on and slot people. We love this mob mentality of taking people down. And I got to tell you something, and I don't want this to really mess you up, but you need to know that Jesus was not the first, nor was he the last person that hinted at his vocation of being God's king. They had crucified a so-called king of the Jews before, and they're going to do it again. So they relish the opportunity to get another one. Because these 600 or so soldiers of Rome were probably gathered from the surrounding towns and villages to shore up the Roman Empire occupying Jerusalem. And they kind of want to get some skin in the game. They kind of aren't really thrilled with the highfalutin Jewish folk that Jesus came from. And some of these Roman soldiers had probably had a friend or two killed by some of the other so-called Jewish kings. They didn't know if Jesus was starting a violent revolution or not. They just knew that if he claims to be a king, he reminds me of that king that killed my buddy secretly with a knife. So they relished the opportunity. And they say, hey, you want to be a king? All right, let's make you one. So they put on the scarlet robe that would be just like Pilate or an emperor wore. But a king doesn't just need a robe, he needs a scepter. Some of y'all seen Game of Thrones and all that. He needs something kingly and stately. So they snap off some reed in some nearby tree. They put it in his hand. Then they rustle up a crown of thorns that would look like a wreath that the princes and the so-called sons of God would have worn, like the Roman Empire, the Son of God. And just for good measure, they made sure it fit, so they struck him again and again on the head. And then, of course, a king also needs to be honored. So there is a phrase they'd say, Hail Caesar. It's not just a Coen Brothers movie. Shout out Jason Knight. It was from a couple years ago. They would say, Hail Caesar. Now they're going to say, Hail King. Hail King of the Jews. And they'd bow down. And you could see this rowdy bunch, man, just getting their licks in before they send them to the cross. But here's the trick. They thought he was just another king. And this is what our world likes to do. If you try to make yourself or think of yourself as anything, wait just a little while before somebody's going to try to take you down a peg or two. We see this in the earliest levels, don't we? With kids in elementary school. And then we see this when it's our whole world and the whole mob going against someone. Did you notice that they didn't just do this mock king thing? Man, they were spitting on him. They were shaming him. They stripped him. They beat him. What they did was dehumanize him. And I think we need to be a distinct community that is cautious to jump on the bandwagon to attack when we're supposed to be people known for forgiveness and love. 
And in a few moments, we're going to really zero in on Jesus' example because he's silent in this passage. But Peter reflects back on how he responded to the mocking and the reviling. But before we get there, I need to make an important note. And because we're talking about some nasty things, let's lighten the mood a little bit. I'm going to talk about my sweet Emma and Nora because they just went to the gym and they don't know I'm about to say this. But one of my girl's favorite pastimes is mimicking, right? Y'all did that. And then somebody goes, y'all did that. Don't repeat me. Don't repeat me, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. But beyond that, they started taking things to the next level. And they would start to walk around the house, and Amy knows this, for many minutes, even for an hour, and just pretend to be daddy or pretend to be mommy. And so when they pretend to be daddy, they're walking around the house and they start going, hey, dude, hey, guys, hey, y'all. And then we got this tiny little hearth that has been the stage for them every time that they've, uh, you know, been since we've been in that house, and they love to get their tiny little guitars, and they get up on that hearth, and they start probably singing like a lounge singer, because evidently that's how I sound. <laughs> they start going, hey, 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 hey. And then they start to walk around, and Nora especially will go, you're precious, you're special, you're beautiful, and I love you. Which is like this sweet thing that I've been doing since the day they were born that I hope one day will sink in and it'll be this beautiful thing that daddy used to do and they're just going, hey, you're precious. You're beautiful. And I'm like, do I even sound like that? So we got videos of this and it's beautiful and it's cute and it's funny and they're doing this and dancing around. But here's the problem. Every single one of these performances starts to take a turn. You know what I'm about to say? It gets real, but I'm going to not get so real. But let's just say that some of the things, when they start to turn, starts to sound like this. Hey, give me some snacks. <laughs> hey, y'all got those Cheez-Its? Hey, bring me some Cheez-Its. I'm like, wait a minute. Hey, what are you doing? He said, ooh, I need 10 tacos. <laughs> we had tacos Monday night. Perhaps your pastor was fasting and was hungry by dinner time. I have five tacos, and it turns into ten Wednesday night when we get home. I need ten tacos. The point I'm making is this. It starts to get real. It starts to get real. Amy's laughing. Because I could read, I could do some of Amy's. But that's for after, when she leaves to go teach at this girl's D now. Y'all come see me, and we'll, we'll, talk, we'll talk about this. No, no, we're not. I love you, babe. That's a long way around to say, even in the mocking, whether it's my girls or Saturday Night Live or the person that's kind of making fun of you, I think when it hurts the most is when their mockery is actually irony and there's truth baked into this thing. I think what Matthew wants us to see is that in their performance, that's all fun and yucks and it's violence and it's business as usual and it's the kinds of things that the crowd and the mob love to do. What Matthew wants us to underline, highlight, and see is he says in all this fun and yucks, you've got to understand that this is a king that they just had no category for and they were refusing to see that perhaps he was a king unlike any other king and what if he's right? What if his followers were right? 
What if the movement they tried to crush that Good Friday by crushing this so-called king on the cross, what if it actually outlasts the very empire that's having their day before they send him to the cross? This is the problem. Our world loves to slot and mock and laugh at us because they think we're some pie in the sky. This is silly. But I think really thoughtful followers of Jesus understand this. That when we really see him for who he is, if we would allow ourselves to open up our hearts just enough to let his light and life shine in, if we really believe that he just might be who he says he is, the transformation that begins to work itself out slowly but deliberately, if we would allow him, I think weathers all of this noise. And the invitation is to see the mocking world, to do what Jesus did, to turn the other cheek, and continue to entrust himself to the Father, and to keep going even if they don't understand yet. Jesus empowers us to forgive and to move forward. I want to jump forward in the story because what happens later on in Matthew's gospel, if you have an open Bible, it's not on the screen, but further on, after Jesus breathes his last, I can't help but wonder it's verse 54, that a centurion, which is a Roman soldier and a leader in the battalion, over a hundred of perhaps those 600, I don't think we have to make a great leap that he might have been part of that crowd that was doing the mock kingness. Perhaps he was at the foot of the cross to see this so-called king breathe his last, but how Jesus died must have transformed him because this is what Matthew records. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened in the aftermath of the crucifixion 6 p.m. that Friday, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Now, we want to rush ahead and say, oh, that's a confession like he was God, he was this. No, no, no. It's their way of saying Surely he actually was a king. I referenced that earlier, the son of God as an emperor or a king. There was something about how Jesus died, and there was something about the aftermath of what was working itself out in real time after the cross that transformed a mocker into a believer. And I think this leads us to where we are in the story and how the cross can change us and change our world if we would see Jesus for who he is. Now, where are we in the story? I gotta be honest, some of us have been mockers as givers, some of us have been mockers, the mocked, the receivers. But I think this is the most self evident proverb I've ever seen, but it puts it so beautifully. When we talk about the power of our words, whether we give or receive, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I think it's worth noting now 
as we're talking about mocking, as we're talking about the words and the ways in which they were berating Jesus and mocking Jesus. And you need to understand that the mocking continued till his dying breath. If you have a Bible open, just keep walking down chapter 27. And you see the guy crucified next to him saying, hey, you saved a bunch of people. Why don't you what? Save yourself. Then, as he's walking down the road, more people spitting on him and saying, yeah, yeah, he's a true king, right? If you're so powerful, get yourself on what? Down from the cross. These are reckless words, and they pierce the heart of Jesus. But what we're about to see is that Jesus continued to entrust himself to the Father. But where we are in the story, note this second half of the proverb, but the tongue of the wise brings what? Healing. Here's just a practical note since we're talking about words and mocking and dogpiling on people and dehumanizing people. How would it affect your relationships this week if you resolve to only speak words that bring healing and not harm? I love that Pastor Bud gave up worrying for Lent. How many of us would do well to give up negativity for the next two weeks? How would it transform your outlook? How would it transform your heart? How would it transform the world around you? I've got to confess that just this week I sent an email to somebody in a circle and I said this snotty little thing that I did not need to say, but I said it. And it wasn't even a mocking, ugly thing, but I read it to Amy as kind of a gauge. And because Amy knows me and we've been together for 10 or 15, a long time, uh, <clears throat> like, We've been together for a while. She knows all my blind spots. She knows me, and she instantly saw through it. She goes, Adam, you didn't need to say that. I said, I know, and that's why I read it to her to see if it would pass the test, but she can read through the snotty and the side comments and the negativity. What would it look like? How would it affect if you only tweeted, spoke, emailed, and Facebooked words that bring healing and not harm? And notice that it can still be true, it doesn't have to be just sugar-coated because we are to speak truth in love. Sometimes Christians just think that's a license to just drop a grenade and say, deal with it, love you, bye. No, 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 no. Is it bending you toward new life and next steps and healing? Could you be a part of the healing process and not the harmful process? But what about when people attack us? What about when people affront us? Let me ask you this. What do we tell our kids when they're bullied at school? We've got a lot of teachers and educators and teacher's aides. What would you tell your kids or kids at school? I'll be honest, we live in Texas, and probably a lot of us would say stand up to them. And what we mean by that is what? Fists up. Speak it back. Now, what's easier to react or to turn the other cheek and resolve to stand your ground, not by standing up to them, but perhaps by looking up and beyond and not retaliating. What if our kids practiced what we expect adults to do because if you punch somebody in the face, you go to jail, not time out. What if we brought our children up in the way of not 
hurting back with our words or our fists? And what if it wasn't just because Adam said it, but what if it was the way of Jesus? This is a central passage in my formational life because I'm still trying to learn it and live it up. But 1 Peter 2, 21-23 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Pause. I loved our response of reading tonight. Give us strength to follow you. Give us strength to follow you. Even as we follow him to the cross and through pain, give us strength. Verse 22, he says, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. What if you committed this week to not say any deceit, side talk, half-truths, whole truths, lies, white lies, fill in the blank. What if no deceit came out of your mouth this week? What would it look like? Verse 23, this is what I really want to highlight. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not what? Retaliate. When he suffered, he made what? No threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Hold on to that. We're going to talk about forgiveness. And we're going to talk about where our hope is in the cross. And then I'm going to share a story and we'll be done. But hold on to that last bit. That's what I mean. What if we stood up by looking up? What would it look like this week if you took the aerial view of what that person said, did, or hurt? And what if you took an aerial view and said, God, as hard as this is and as much as my heart breaks, your heart breaks for them too because hurt people tend to hurt people. And I believe you're not done here with me or them. So what if we looked up and entrusted ourselves That's where we find the hope. And I love that what Jesus says, when we finally hear Jesus speaking back to the guards, do y'all know what he says? Do y'all know what he says? Did he defend himself and say, I am a king? No. The words we have recorded that Jesus said to his torturers and crucifiers and these same soldiers that mocked him was this. Do you see it? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. For these soldiers, it was another day at the park, another king to mock and kill. The Son of God took the full weight of our sin and darkness, turned the other cheek and said, forgive them. That's our example. That's who is living within us. And empowering us and calling us to do the same this week in your real everyday life and relationships. But you need to understand that forgiveness does not always mean that you're just going to forget or delete the hurt and the hit that you felt. It's fascinating that when Jesus is resurrected, we get a glimpse of his resurrected body that is different from our bodies. And one day our bodies will be raised like Jesus's. But Jesus extends a hand to Thomas and says, feel the scars. Jesus in some ways still bore the hurt and the hit of the cross. And I need you to know that it's okay that you haven't completely just forgotten that thing. Okay? 
I think what happens over time is that it loses its power and the pain does dissipate. But don't let someone say, just forgive and forget. I think the better term would be to forgive and release. Forgive and release them and the hurt and the hit into God's hands and see what happens over time, which is a second piece. Forgiveness does not always mean you will forgive once and for all. I know this experientially because sometimes Amy and I talk about how I wish it were just a one and done thing. But because we may not forget, I think that provides us an opportunity to every time it wells back up, every time that word, that phrase, that tape on repeat centers up again, we have to say, okay, Jesus, I'm feeling the feelings. Have mercy on me. I forgive them and I release them. And I think that's why when the disciples said, Jesus, how often we got to forgive these dodos that hurt us? Seven times, Jesus is probably more like 70 times seven. I just got to tell you, like I feel it, like you know it, I wish it were one and done. I wish you could forget. But that's why we need to understand that forgiveness is about releasing the person and the pain from retaliation and into God's hands. Was this not what Jesus just did? He didn't turn around and try to mock them. He didn't turn around and try to smite them. Do you realize that when God felt the worst heat of hate from humanity, he did not smite them, he sacrificed his very son so that he could show them his true heart and disposition toward them, which is not wrath or hate, but love, co-suffering, sacrificial love. If God looks different than Jesus, question That God. Forgiveness is modeled by God Himself, releasing the person and the pain from retaliation and into God's hands. It bears repeating that forgiveness is a one way street, but reconciliation is a two way street. Jesus told us to bless those who persecute you, to pray for those who persecute you, but reconciliation, a healthy relationship, that's a two way street. Unfortunately, it takes two to tango in relationships. And so that's why in the 12-step process, you offer amends, but you don't have to expect anything back. Because sometimes the relationship is fractured and it, it hurts and damages and affects you so deeply that reconciliation may not be possible right now. But both forgiveness and reconciliation require heart work within you and the hard work externally, of trying to fight for peace. Because to this we've been called, because Christ Jesus suffered for us so that he could form us into a forgiven community of forgiving sinners. This is what we've called to become. I want to close with this. Reminding you that Christ Jesus suffered physically relationally, emotionally, socially, and that it is through his suffering that he saved and rescued a suffering world. And I'm going to try to get my arms around how that works the next two weeks. When we talk about his crucifixion, Lord willing, and when we step into Good Friday, 
to talk about the myriad ways he transformed and turned the world upside down on an axis of love and forgiveness. But I just want to leave you with this thought. When you feel mocked and betrayed and denied and condemned, remember that our God is near to the brokenhearted, our Savior is acquainted with suffering, and our hope looks darkness right in the face and says, this is not the end. It's not the end for me because it wasn't the end for Jesus. And if I am in Jesus and trusting God, it's not the end. And I was so touched by a story I heard last week that I think bears witness to that as we close. Y'all remember that many of us, seven of us, went to Missio Alliance. We're part of a church network called Ecclesia, and one of the sister organizations is called Missio Alliance. And it's this national, North American, theological kind of forum and blogs and resourcing and all these things. There's like 1,200 people that were just outside of D.C. And it was a beautiful conference And what we experienced was every plenary session and every workshop had a person of color and a woman speaking majorly, amazingly to the crucified God that's still at work in our lives, in the margins and in all spheres of life. It was a beautiful, diverse gathering that was a real big blessing for us. I left a bit early. That's why I was with you all last Saturday. So the last workshop on the last day that I experienced, as much as I heard from these wonderful speakers and presentations, the last thing hit me the most. And it wasn't from somebody who was paid to be there. I was in a workshop called Listening to the Voices of the Margins. And they were talking about listening to the people in our communities that are oppressed and put upon and not lifted up and high in places of power. And so I was sitting in the back because I came in a bit late and I was sitting next to a gentleman that I had seen that week who was in a wheelchair. He was about my age and he had the last word in the reflection and response that evening. And he said, I really appreciate what you guys have said. And I've got to under, y'all have got to understand that I'm a young, white, middle-class male that had a lot of advantages and legs up in my life. But eight years ago, I was in an accident, and that's what put me in this wheelchair. And he said, at that season, I was in the deepest, darkest place. I wasn't just screaming at God, I was cussing at God. I wasn't just angry, I was raging at God and all of those around me. And about that time, a pastor entered into his life and began to walk with him and meet with him. And he told him, when you start to spiral out, the man in the wheelchair's name was Garrett. He said, Garrett, think of some word, some phrase that is like an alarm clock that will wake you up and pull you out of the dark depth of the abyss and up and out for air and to let the light shine on you again. Would you think and process what that might be? So Garrett was sharing in this group, he said, I'd always been fascinated by the incarnation, that the word of God became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. And he experienced all the hurt and the mess and the mocking and the betrayal and the condemnation. 
He said, I was always fascinated by the incarnation. But after I was in the chair, I realized what that really looked like. That God himself became an infant, became a baby. He couldn't feed himself. God couldn't wipe himself. God was completely and utterly dependent and on the bottom of the totem pole. Then he said these words, and this became the alarm clock that woke him up out of darkness. He said, Christ became disabled for me. And I guess because I had had a long week, I immediately start weeping. And I'm four feet from this guy, and 20 eyes get just on me in the room. So I'm going, hmm, yes. And uh, I just start writing in my journal and turning back. But when we're talking about Jesus' journey, understand that Christ became disabled for Garrett. That Christ became betrayed for us who've been betrayed. That Christ became condemned for all of those that have been condemned and judged unfairly. That Christ was denied just like you've been denied. That Christ was crucified for all of us so that he could pull us up out of death and darkness and into new life and to show the world a way of love and forgiveness that would turn it upside down if we would just look to the cross and see him as the king that he truly is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together and to reflect on the life of Jesus. We thank you for your word that gives us a glimpse and an insight into who this suffering servant really was in real time in human history. Lord, we just ask that you would take what we've heard, that we would take what we've seen and sung, that it would take root in our hearts and our minds, that it would begin to dismantle the hurt that we felt when we ourselves have been mocked, or the regret and shame that we feel when we have mocked and ridiculed others. We ask for your forgiving presence to be upon us in this place, that we might be a forgiven community of forgiving sinners. And we pray, Lord, that we would use our words to bring healing and not harm through Christ Jesus, our Lord and example. Amen. And now, may you continue following Jesus to the cross. May you see him in a whole new light, listening and learning. May you experience God's revelation to you. May you reflect the goodness and the beauty of Christ. Be reminded the one who walked so long ago still walks beside us. And the one who spoke still speaks. May you go in his peace and love. Amen.